0: Hello, and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. Last week, we talked with author and historian Michelle Duster about the legacy of her great grandmother, Ida B. Wells. This week, AWM President Carrie Cranston sits down with bestselling author and immigrant rights advocate, Ulyssa Arce, to kick off National Hispanic Heritage Month. We hope you enjoy entering the mind of a writer. I'd like to get to our program. We have a special guest, Julissa Arce. She's part of the um, exhibit that is in the other room. She was nice enough to meet with me in Los Angeles and be interviewed, so we appreciate that. Um, And she was here this morning um, and had a nice conversation with a bunch of fifth graders who were... A hundred of them who were very well-behaved and had some wonderful questions. Um, so uh, Jalissa's first book uh, in 2016 was titled My Underground American Dream. The book told the fascinating and heart-wrenching but in the end uplifting story of how she persevered from the stress of finding herself an undocumented immigrant as a young girl um, to becoming the VP at one of the most powerful financial firms in the world. Pretty much by sheer force of will. And amazingly hard work. And more importantly, it also told how that hardship drove her to do more than just take her success and financial reward for herself uh, as she became an activist and voice for so many people dealing with those same issues. Most recently, Julissa's second book is a young adult version of this story entitled Someone Like Me, which is what the fifth graders today were so excited to not only hear about but to receive a copy of, and we're fortunate to have a chance to hear more about Julissa's story and talk to her about the writing and how her life drove her to writing. So please help me in welcoming Julissa Arsene. So I was going to start off and just ask you a few questions before we go to Q&A. your book is, uh, very different from maybe some of the stereotypes that we might expect of a book of someone who has come to America, um, and is undocumented and is dealing with those issues. Um, you came from a very comfortable living in Mexico. Your parents were legal immigrants in the United States doing business. Um, and, can you tell us or explain what brought you here and what created the situation that made you an undocumented child um, in the U.S.?
1: Um, well, thank you for for coming out. I know it's uh, it's really cold outside, and um, I've got to be honest. Every time, every time I do an event, no matter what, I always sit in the little room just afraid that I'm going to come out here and there's going to be like two people here. So, uh, so thank you so much for, um, for coming out. It, it, it means a lot, especially, um, in this weather. Um, so to answer your question, um, you know, I, I did have, um, what I think a lot of people would consider a very comfortable life, uh, a very middle-class life. I went to private school in Mexico. I had ballet lessons and, um, I went to art classes and, um I didn't really have to worry about um shoes on my feet or food on my table. But I think that the one of the things that I realized as I was older was that the reason I could have that life in Mexico is because of the sacrifices that my parents were making here in the U.S., right? Um, and the reason I had that comfortable life in Mexico, um, to me, the biggest price that I was paying for that life was the absence of my parents because I lived in Mexico and my parents lived in the U.S., most of the time. They, they, as you mentioned, they had, um, they had, they had visas that allowed them to travel back and forth between Mexico and the U.S. So they would come visit us, uh, and stay with us for a few weeks and then come back to Mexico and be gone four months at a time. So, um, so I think that's the first thing that I, that I would say because, uh, you know, when I, when I think about the motivation for my parents wanting to come to the U.S. It really was always to give us a better life in Mexico, right? And because they felt like, um, with the opportunities they had there, I wouldn't have been able to go to a private school and um, and have all the all the things that I had. I came to the U.S. when I was eleven. Um, and how many people here have, have read the book? Okay, so there's a few of you. Um, so you've read the story. And for those of you that um, that have not read the book, I, I hope that you'll pick it up because there's a lot of really great things in there. Uh, really great writing. Um, uh, but I might give some things away. And uh, one of those things is like the reason, when I think about if I could point to one, one choice I made in my life that was really the impetus for my parents bringing me to the United States, although I think it would have happened anyways at some point, um but i gave this boy that i had a crush on i was 10 years old and i gave this boy that i had a crush on a playboy magazine that yeah i know scandalous uh that i found that i found this magazine and i just thought he would think i was cool i mean i was 10 years old i had really no idea what I was really doing. Um, and it was a bis- big scandal. I mean, my my grandma prayed like 10 rosaries that night for my soul. Uh, my mom and my dad like immediately went back to Mexico. My sisters who were uh, in a faraway town in school, I like, came back, we had a family meeting. It was a big, big thing. And I was 10 and not really understanding like what was the big deal. Um, and, you know, everything... everything passed. My parents came back to the U.S. and I thought that was the end of it. I was like, I, nobody, I'm not even grounded. Like what's happening? Um, and then I came to, I came to visit my parents for the summer and then I stayed. And they, um, eventually told me that I was going to stay in the United States, um, because, they didn't think that me being in Mexico by myself, pretty much at this point, living with my grandmother was the best thing for a 10 year old girl, especially because of the way that quote unquote, I was behaving. Um, and so that is what brought me to the United States. Um, and then as those of you have read in the book, there was a, a series of, um, really unforeseeable circumstances that led to my parents having a very different economic situation than they did when I first came to live here. So three years after I moved here, my visa expired. And you know, in fact, 40% of the undocumented people in the country never crossed the border illegally. We came here on some sort of visa, whether it was a tourist visa, as I did, a work visa, a student visa, and then that visa expired. And for many, many, many reasons, people are unable to renew them, um, as was my case. And that's when I became undocumented. I was 14 years old. I had been in the US for three years. I had finally started to learn English, and I had finally started to make friends, and I had finally started getting to the idea that Now I had parents because for eight years of my life, I thought I had parents, but my relationship with them was so different when they would come visit me. Rather than them being in my life, being a constant presence in my life, really parenting. Um, and I didn't really understand what it meant to be undocumented when I was 14. I mean, I, I was just upset that I couldn't go to Mexico to have my quinceanera. That's really all I wanted was to go have a party in Mexico, um, with all of my family. I mean, just my family would have been like, you know, a hundred people guest list um, And that's all I wanted And my mom said you can't go Because your visa has expired And if you go to Mexico You won't be able to come back anymore um, And those those were the circumstances Under which I became undocumented and,
0: um, So That in the book um, And obviously in life That became something that Was a huge part of your day to day life For another 15 years um, And Can you talk a little bit about how heavy, you know, as you said in the beginning, it doesn't affect you, but eventually you're trying to go to college, you're you're filling out applications. Um, Can you talk about how that stress then builds and builds over the course of years um, as you're trying to live your best possible life and be successful and and really be a part of the world that you're living in? Yeah.
1: Yeah. so there's, there's a lot of consequences to being undocumented. I mean, the the very first one for me was this, um, this fear that over, that overcame me all the time. Um, because the biggest thing was not to tell anyone that I was undocumented because if people knew they might use it against me, um, you know, I've been very motivated and very inspired by young undocumented people now who, um, are out fighting for their rights and they are you know, chanting, we're unafraid, uh, undocumented and unafraid. And I think to myself, when I was 15 years old, 16, 18 years old, I did not have that power um, to say those things. And so I was very much afraid and I was very much keeping the secret from everyone. Um, I shared earlier with the students that when I was 16, and it was all of my friends were getting their driver's licenses, I always had to lie about why I didn't do certain things. Right, like when they said, "When are you going to get your driver's license?" I would just say, "Well, I don't, I don't really know how to drive yet." And then they would say, "We just, we saw you drive the other day," and I'm like, "Oh, well, yeah, but you know, I'm not ready yet for the test." Um, when in, in later on in college, when my friends were um, applying for Study abroad programs, and they would say, "Why don't you go?" Um, and I very much wanted to go. And I remember many times going into the study abroad office to find out information about what study abroad programs there were and how I might be able to qualify for them. Very well knowing that I was kind of being delusional in a way because I knew that I couldn't go. Um, and so it was. It really, I think, for me. The biggest things about being undocumented were the everyday small things that we, and I say we now because I am a citizen now, I do have papers now, that we take for granted, right? Going to a bar to get a drink with a friend and not having an ID. So, you know, college students, I don't know how many of you here, and in college had a fake ID. I think a lot of us probably did, right? I see some college students being like, I have one now. Um, and, you know, nobody... Ca- I mean, we all kind of are like, yeah, that's like a thing we do. We have a fake ID when we're in college to go get a drink. But for me, uh, you know, the idea of like getting caught using a fake ID to go get a drink was just something I couldn't even fathom because the consequences for me could be much greater, right?
0: And... Um you know, in that same vein, um, because it's something that so many young undocumented students have to deal with every year, is you talk a little bit about um, what it meant for you in higher education as far as, you know, applications, financial aid, um, what you had to go through to just try and be a student.
1: Yeah, um... So um, in 2001, Texas became the first state in the US to allow undocumented students to go to college, pay in-state tuition, and receive state financial aid. And I know that's like really hard to believe today, Uh, but Texas was leading the way for uh, undocumented students' rights, which is really amazing and also really sad how much things have changed. Um, And that was uh, in 2001. When this law passed um, and as I, as I talk about in, in, in the book, um, finding out that this law had passed and that now I could apply to go to college was um, you know it was really life changing it really really changed my life to be able to apply to college to receive financial aid, state financial aid uh, and and to be able to go to college today, there are really only 23, 24 states that have similar laws that allow undocumented students to go to college and pay in-state tuition. And then you have places like Georgia, Alabama, and South Carolina where they have laws that make it a crime for an undocumented student to enroll in certain um, universities. So if an undocumented student tries to enroll uh, in, let's say, University of Georgia, they could be charged with a crime. So, you know, in some places we've made progress, and in other places, um, in my opinion, we're we're going backwards, and that continues to be a really big challenge. For every year, there's over, there's about a hundred thousand undocumented students that graduate high school that still cannot access any kind of financial aid, um, and because of that, I actually started a scholarship fund in New York, and. In six years that we've been around, we've awarded almost half a million dollars um, to about 60 students um, so that they can go to college because I don't think that your immigration status should stop you from attending an institution of higher learning.
0: And, and, you know, you you mentioned they gave you state aid and they gave you um, in-state tuition, but in most states, you know, $5,000 doesn't cover in-state tuition and it didn't cover it for you. So you had to work, you had to... uh, Oh,
1: yeah. I I sold funnel cakes in San Antonio, so I would take a Greyhound bus and then go to San Antonio, sell funnel cakes. And then on Sunday nights, I would take the Greyhound bus and go back to Austin. Um, I did apply for one scholarship that didn't ask for a social security number. And I don't think they meant to be open to undocumented students because, you know, 20 years ago, people couldn't really even imagine that undocumented people went to college. Um And so I got this scholarship, and actually, Rick Perry, the then governor of Texas, like awarded me this scholarship and shook my hand and gave me this big plaque that said that, um, I was the, I was the shining, uh, ray of hope for the future of Texas. Um, I still have that. It's actually in my living room, uh, because I, I, I really, um, I really took that to heart. I was like, I am the future of Texas.
0: Um, in your book, you talk, obviously, a lot about you, you had a huge amount of drive um, to get to your job, to get through college, to get to Goldman Sachs in particular. But um, before I ask you about Goldman Sachs, I'm kind of curious, too, um, you have a unique background also in the fact that you had you know, two uh, women business leaders in your family, your grandmother and your mother were really both very strong businesswomen who were very successful. Um, and I'm kind of curious how you saw that then and how you see it, you know, in years years later. I mean, obviously, it was just what you knew when you were a kid. Yeah. But how did it impact you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've always had really um, great examples of strong women in my life. My my mom, um, she only went to sixth grade. And after sixth grade, she had to drop out of school because she had to be home to help her um, to help her mom take care of her younger siblings. Um, and my mom with a sixth grade education was still able to, you know, at, at at one point, um, in her, in her life, she was importing the business that my, the business that my parents had was importing sterling silver jewelry from Mexico to the U.S. Um, and actually they would go, there's like, there's a big convention center, in the Chicago area, right? I forget what it's called. Uh, McCormick Ro- Place. Maybe it was something Rose. Rose oh, Rosemont. Yes, yeah. Rosemont. Yes. So my mom would go like to trade shows there, um, and I'm always just so impressed with the fact that my mom was able to accomplish that. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but there was a lot of things that happened, and um, eventually the business um, the business went bankrupt. She could never she could never recover um, from thefts that happened. In the United States, you know, not on the dangerous Mexican side, Um, and uh, and my grandma too. You know, my grandma was my family has always been one of of matriarchs, and um, and they always really encouraged me to to be who I wanted to be. And I have to say, it wasn't just my mom and my grandma and the women in my life. My dad also had a lot to do with me always growing up feeling like I could do whatever I wanted to do because, um, my dad always taught me all the things that, uh, in, in my culture might be viewed as something that you teach a son. My dad taught me how to drive. And when he taught me how to drive, he said, you're going to know how to change a wheel in the car, the, and you're going to know how to change the oil in your car. And, uh, and so he always really also empowered me, um, and never made me feel like, oh, you're a girl, you have to do these things ever.
0: And you had, um, you had some mentors at Goldman Sachs too, who were, uh, a woman who was helpful to your career and, and was a good example. So, um, but I'm, I'm kind of curious that, that drive you had for Goldman Sachs, can you talk about not just that you had it and, and obviously you did a ton of work to get there and to succeed, but what, what made that want so strong in you?
1: I wanted to make a lot of money. Uh, was really the number one reason I wanted to go work on Wall Street. Uh, I saw this poster in college that said you can make $10,000 working uh, at Walmart, on Wall Street for the summer. And I thought, oh, my God, $10,000, that's going to solve all of my problems. Like, everyone, I'm going to be able to get a green card and... If I'm rich, then like, who's going to want to deport me? I'm going to be rich. Um, this is like 19-year-old me thinking these things. And, uh, you know, the reality is that it didn't matter how well I did in my career or how much money I had um, because the laws didn't allow me to apply to get a green card. I didn't qualify. I think when we tell undocumented people, why don't you apply, we're forgetting the very real fact that the laws as they are in the United States today do not allow the majority of undocumented people to apply. I was one of those people for 15 years, which is why for 15 years I was undocumented. Um, But that really was my motivation. I just thought, I need to make a lot of money because if I do that, if I'm powerful and if I have money and if I have status, then I'll be able to solve my immigration issue. And... That wasn't the case, and that was one of the most frustrating things uh, in my life. Was feeling like I had worked, I had done everything we tell people to do, learn how to speak English. Even though you know, I think that that's already in of itself um, has a lot of connotations to it. Because by the way, like learning another language is really hard, and it's not that immigrants don't want to learn English, but sometimes. There's, there are no resources to learn English, Um, but I did it. Learned English, you know, Uh, got a college degree, got a great job, paid taxes because undocumented people pay taxes. Um, I mean, I did everything and still wasn't enough. It just always felt like the goal line was always moving, constantly moving.
0: Um, and, and you mentioned, you describe it a little bit, I think the phrase in your book is, you know, is, is a golden cage, mm-hmm. um, that you were in this situation and nothing was changing as far as where you were, um, and all of the different things that got in your way. Um,
1: by the way, the golden cage, uh, La Jaula de Oro, I didn't invent that, like Los Tigres del norte. Is. Invented that phrase, and so I got to give them credit for that because I did not come up with that on my own. And,
0: uh, well, it's a good phrase, and um, but the uh, so you know, and you've mentioned a lot of these different things that were your impediments, um, and yet you were extremely successful. You left of your own accord, though. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know what was that thing that happened, or you know that kind of made you say, "I need to do something else"?
1: So. Um, as I mentioned, I uh, when I was little, I mean, first of all, I didn't know what Wall Street was. Um, but when I was little, I, I never was dreaming I'm going to go work on Wall Street. I'm going to that—that was never like my dream. Um, and then I did feel very much like I was trapped in that in that job because um, because. I didn't have the flexibility to leave that job and go try to find another job while I was undocumented, right? I never really had the freedom to really ask myself, what do I want to do with my life? And that's I think a very big luxury to have that luxury to be able to ask yourself, what do you really what do I really want to do with my life? You know, my mom never asked herself that question. Her drive in life was to give her children a better life, and whatever that meant, that's what it meant. And for the first time in my life, when I decided to leave Wall Street, I had a green card. I had the financial resources. Um, At that time, I still had a husband that could dance. You know, I I was like, I can finally ask myself, what do I want to do with my life? And I I had that freedom and and I had never had that feeling in my life. And so I decided that I I needed to leave and I needed to figure out what I wanted to do. And what I realized was that I had always wanted to be a writer. i had always wanted to write. And I had a really important story to tell, which was my story, my truth. And I thought, especially with everything that was going on at that time, this is like 2016 when I'm deciding to write my first book, um, I think you guys remember what happened in 2016. And I thought, you know, I really need to share my story. I can't keep holding on to this. I have to share it and give people a glimpse of what it's like to be undocumented. One story of what it's like to be undocumented, because to your point, there are
0: many stories. Um, You you mentioned about feeling like you wanted to be a writer for a long time. And when we met the first time, you told me about what really started you writing, which goes back to being young and your journals. Can you tell everybody about that and how important that was?
1: Yeah. I mean, journaling was like God sent to me because it was the only place where I could really be honest about what was happening in my life. Because as I mentioned, part of being undocumented is having to tell a lot of little lies, to everybody about why you do certain things, about why you act a certain way. Uh, And then it really comes to a point where I would think, why did I tell them I couldn't go? You know, because keeping a lie is really hard. Like you have to remember what lie you told to whom and keeping track of that, it just becomes impossible. That's why the truth is always so much easier. Uh, But in my journals, I could be really honest with myself and I could really express how I was feeling and why I was feeling those things. Um, and I remember, um, shortly after my dad passed away, writing in my journal, one day, all of this shit is going to be for something. It's going to, all of this pain has to amount to something. One day I'm going to write a book. And I, and I wrote out all of the chapters of the books I was one day of, of the book one day I was going to write. And that was about 10 years before I actually wrote my book
0: um and back on this notion of of language that you brought up um you were 11 when you came here you didn't speak really any english i think you said maybe a song you could Mm -hmm. sing um you very quickly learned the language and you mentioned in your book the first time you dreamed in english um i'm curious where are you now as far as language goes do you have a dominant language and how does it affect you as a writer
1: Mm -hmm. um Yeah. I remember the first time, I mean, the first time I, I, I dreamt in English, I was really freaked out. Um, I woke up and I just was like, oh my God, I, I'm going to watch Univision all day today because I was like, I'm going to forget Spanish. Um, and I, I was really, really freaked out, especially because like people that weren't, that don't even, didn't even live in the United States. Like my family in Mexico was like speaking English and I was like, this is really freaky. Um, so So you know, I think over time over time, English has definitely become my dominant language. I mostly speak in English. I definitely write in English. Um, but more recently, I have made a really concerted effort to read more books in Spanish. To um, I'm I'm remarried and my husband speaks Spanish. And so we speak Spanish to each other. Um, But language is a really interesting thing. Um, We have with us a great storyteller, Nestor Gomez, um, with us uh, today. And if you haven't heard his moth story, you must listen to it. Um, And we were talking about this today that part of what what he describes in his story, and I hope it's okay if I say... um, it's uh, it's this idea that as you're learning English, um, you are in some ways losing connection to your culture, to your family, right? because there were points. There's been points in my life when there's certain things that I feel like I cannot describe to my mother anymore because I don't have the language to describe those things to her. And I found myself not calling my mom as often, not talking to my mom as often because I felt frustrated by my own inability to communicate with her. Um, And I, I don't want that to be the case anymore. And so that's why I have really try to take big steps to, um, and I've always considered, and I have always been fluent in Spanish, but I stopped learning Spanish when I was in fifth grade. Right. And so my vocabulary wasn't growing as, as I was growing. Um, but languages, it's a really tricky thing. Um, but you know, now I'm really, really, really comfortable, uh, with speaking Spanglish. Like, I really am. Like, I, I don't mind it at all. Um, in fact, in the in the latest book proposal that I've been working on, I didn't even idolize any of the Spanish words um, because I find myself when I'm reading any book, right, that there are words that I don't know what they mean um, because I think we're constantly always learning language, right? And so I pull out a dictionary and I look up what the word means. And so I thought, you know, people can do that too. If there's like a Spanish word, they don't know what it means. And hopefully you get the context, right? Because it's in the sentence and you can figure out what it means. But if it doesn't, there's our friend Google.
0: (laughs) That's a good point. Um, So the first book um, was obviously your story written to a more general older audience. Um, And now the new book uh, that just came out last year is that story told for a young adult audience. So can you talk a little bit you know, about the why you decided to do that, but also the process that goes into that, you know, how do you write to a different level if you've already written the story and how do you change the story?
1: Yeah. Um, I loved, I loved writing my young adult book and I love talking to children. They are so amazing and they blow my mind with the questions that they ask. It's, it's incredible. Um, and also there's like, I'm like, oh my God, when I have a kid, they're going to have so much competition. I need to get them started. Like, you know, day one, I'm going to start reading to you. Um, but I, I, I wanted to write a young adult book specifically because when I was growing up, going to sixth grade, uh, living in Texas, where there's a large Mexican population and uh, a large Mexican American population in schools. Still, I never read a book that had a Latina protagonist. And especially, I never read a book about an undocumented uh, girl ever. And that made me feel really lonely because I just didn't think my story was important because nobody was telling the story. And so I thought if I can make a difference in like one child's life because they read this book and something in my story resonates with them and they're able to connect with it, then they can know that their stories are so important that people are writing books about them. And that really was why I wanted to write for young adults. Um, I think I was, at, at the beginning, I was a little bit afraid that the things I was writing, middle grade students would not understand, right? Like how do I write how do I write the the scene about, I gave this kid a Playboy magazine? Like, no school is ever going to want to give this book to their child. Um, how do I write about um, my dad um, having a problem with alcohol? How do I write about... Um, so, so many things like that that are really difficult things to write about. I mean, even, even for an adult audience is difficult to write. And so for, um, for a young adult, it's even, to me, it felt really daunting. Um, but part of what I, what I did was read a lot of other young adult, um, books to kind of try to get a sense for what the tone should be like, for what, and then, and then, you know, and then I, I kind of walk, talked to myself off the ledge because I thought, kids are a lot smarter than we think they are. And they know so much more than than we even want to admit that we know they know. Um, and so then I just, I kind of really just started writing. And in the book, in Someone Like Me, the first half of the book, it's all new. So it's stuff that is not in my underground American dream. Um, and I really enjoyed writing about living in mexico and growing up in mexico and what my life was like in mexico um because i had a life before i came to live here and i really wanted to share what that life was like
0: Mm -hmm. Um, well i'm gonna change topics now Um, i'm gonna ask you before we go to q a to uh, talk about your book is as you've said it's you telling your story uh, the original story because you felt like there were people that needed to hear it um this version for kids that would really resonate with some children that need to hear it and connect with someone. Um, There's a book that just came out, and I'm going to guess that a lot of you know about this book, but in case you don't, the book's called American Dirt. Um, And uh, there's some issues with it um, in the sense of who wrote it, um, what it's about, how the characters are portrayed, um, and you mentioned this morning that you're in the midst of writing an article for one of the media outlets um, about it and that you had to pick it up in the airport um, to read it so that you could write about it. So I'm just kind of curious if you've read any of it so far and and where you are with the issue and with the book itself.
1: Okay, so I want to... Um so one, I had read uh excerpts of the book and an advanced copy and had skimmed through it so it's not you know so when I was um commenting on it before uh it's not like I was commenting on it without having read the book or knowing what the book was about, or like at least having an idea of what the arc of the story was uh I have since as as you mentioned uh because I felt like okay, and now I'm going to write about it, and I really need to be able to like say yes, I read every word I underlined i um like really carefully read through it, right? Um, so that's what I'm doing now. Like, And yes, I'm almost done. Um, okay, where do I start? Um, let me give you an example. I talked about my quinceanera, right? And how I like really wanted to have a quinceanera. Who here has been to a quinceanera? Okay, who here has had a quinceanera? Okay, a few of you. Uh, but most everyone here knows what a quinceanera is. Right? Okay. It's this is really uh, important. Well, uh, you know, to me, it was really important uh, party to have. Um, and in the book, uh, the the book starts off with there are sixteen people at this quinceañera. That's like red flag number one. I'm like, sixteen <laughs> people at a quinceañera? Like, are you kidding me? That's not even like. That's like. <laughs> Yeah, that's like breakfast, you know, not even dinner. I was like, red flag number one. Then, you know, I'm not giving anything away from the book in case you are going to read it. Um, Then the cartel shows up, and they kill 16 people. Uh, And after the cartel leaves, um, 101.fm is on. So you're telling me that at a quinceanera, the music is coming from the radio? Like, at the very least, you would have a playlist, you know? Like, premium Spotify, like, no ads. Like, are you kidding me? So just from, I know I'm being, you know, I'm, I'm not just trying to be, like, funny. Like, these are the type of cultural inaccuracies that... From the beginning, I felt like this book is not really giving, um, it's not really connecting with the cultural experience that it's trying to represent. And, you know, people should make up their own mind about what they think about the book. But what I will say is that everyone should really listen to the people that are telling you that there's a problem with this book. Because we're telling you that because it's trying to represent, in many ways, our experience. And not one experience is going to be the experience, right? Like, my book doesn't tell every undocumented person's life or experience. No book is going to do that. But I do think that as writers, we have a responsibility to be accurate, about the things that we're trying to write about. And um, I also think that there's a bigger problem with what's happening right now, which is that you know, the book is very much being uh, marketed as the book, if you want to learn about undocumented people. The book that is going to change your mind about what's happening at the border. Um, the book that it's going to change you. I mean, that's like actually on the jacket of the book. This book will change you. Uh, and I just think that there are so many people, and I know the author has said that she wishes she wishes someone slightly browner than her would have written this book. And I think to myself, there have been a lot of brown people, including me, um, that have written about the subject. And to say that is to invalidate the work that we have done. And, you know, it's not entirely her fault. Like a lot of people had to, a lot of, it takes a lot of people for a book to come. I mean, you guys, there's seriously like a million people involved in getting a book to the shelves, right? There's like your editor and the publisher and the publicist and the book buyers and the booksellers. And I mean, there's so many people, right? So this, so it was, this to me was just like a perfect storm of everybody buying into this narrative. And, um, you know, now we have, And to be honest, like there was a point during the last week where all of this has been happening, where I felt a little bit defeated. I just felt like there's nothing I can say or do. Like this book is going to sell so many copies, and it's going to be in classrooms, and it's going to be people are going to think that they know about immigrants because they've read this book. And I mean, you know, it's happening, but. I feel a personal responsibility to keep talking about what the issues are with it and also elevate the writers and the books that, to me, feel more authentic to my experience. Um, And I think, you know, there's one good thing from all of this is that... People are also talking about what are the alternatives to this book. If you don't want to read this book, if you want to read more authentic experiences, um, read this other books.
0: Yes. Um, read
1: my book, Someone <laughs> Like Me, uh, My Underground American Dream. Read Erica Sanchez's book, I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. We have an amazing author in the audience. Please, thank you for being here, Erica. Um, yeah, read our books. They're, I highly recommend them.
0: And and read any of the books of any of the authors in the yes. exhibit in the other room. Um, and if you check, it, a lot of them also talk about their favorite authors and things like that. So take some time in there. Um, thank you, thank everybody, you. for coming out. It was really wonderful. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Writers Museum podcast. Our National Hispanic Heritage Month celebration continues next week with Louis Perez, Grammy award-winning singer-songwriter of Los Lobos. Now go, be inspired, and find the mind of a writer in yourself.